one of the pastors here at Restoration Church. We've been uh, started a series through the book of Proverbs, and we're trying to think about what wisdom is, what wisdom does. We've defined wisdom as joyfully applying God's truth for life. And so this week kind of starts some of those more specific situational sermons. So today we're going to be thinking about decision making. How is we as Christians, how do we make decisions in light of who God is and what he's done for us? But before we go in there, let me pray for us and we'll dive in. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for the greatness of the glory of God in Christ Jesus. Thank you for the gospel. We're in by it. We can know the truth. And so walk in it by your grace and for your glory. Help me now, God, to speak the truth and ready your people to hear it. That we might be the kinds of people that make wise choices and not the choices of fools. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, sociologist Barry Schwartz has written a book, one of my favorite kind of non-Christians books. He's a sociologist. He's written a book called The Paradox of Choice. And the premise of the book is that the more freedom of choice we have, the less happy we become. More choices we have, less happy we become. He says, quote, learning to choose is hard. Learning to choose well is harder. And learning to choose well in a world of unlimited possibilities, is harder still. He mentioned some other sociologists that have noted that since 1960, Americans have significantly increased in material wealth. And during that same period of time, they note that the divorce rate has doubled, teen suicide rate has tripled, violent crime rate has quadrupled, Prison population has quintupled. Percentage of babies born to unmarried parents has sextupled. The rate of cohabitation without marriage, which is the strongest predictor for divorce, has increased sevenfold. Clinical depression during that time has increased three times the rate before it. And, of course, all of this exacerbates stress, doesn't it? Schwartz goes on to say that, quote, if, if it were up to us to choose whether or not to have choice, we would opt for choice almost every time. But it is the cumulative effect of these added choices that I think is causing substantial distress, unquote. More affluence, more choices to choose differing lifestyles equals, he says, more stress, more disappointment, more sadness, more loneliness. And so we ask the question, what's, what's, what's Schwartz's conclusion? To all of this. What's the way, what's his solution to kind of walk us out? What does he say? Well, interestingly, he looks at religious communities that seem to have more happiness than those that don't. And he concludes, quote, what seems to contribute most to happiness binds us rather than liberates us. In other words, as opposed to what we might have been told, it is not the single person with unlimited sexual options that are the most happy. But what we find is it's the religiously committed, monogamous marriage that seem to be more happy. What binds, what limits us, frees us more than unlimited options, which actually serves to often enslave us. And yet here we are. Most of you are crippled by the decisions that you all have to make. It's one of the reasons we chose to do this sermon. Should I... Take in these decisions, by the way, you'll notice these are not like black and white kind of things. These are kind of murky decisions, which makes up most of the decisions we have to make. 
So we, are, we struggle with questions like, well, should I take another vacation? And if so, do I go to Florence or Florida? Should I date someone that I met online in another state? Should I call them, text them, email them, or go see them? Another one, so we've dated for over a year. Should I stop this? Should I keep going? What should I do? For the Marys, should we have another child? What about another degree? Should we sign up for that travel sports team, our kids for that travel sports team? Or should we sign up for the rec team or maybe the kind of select team that's in between? Should I give my kid a phone or video games? And if so, how much and how often? When we're thinking of kids in education, should we send them to public school, private school, or homeschool them? Should I take that job in another state? Should we buy or rent? Mask, no mask, vax, no vax, Republican, Democrat, independent, standing in the grocery aisle. Should I get the white bread, the wheat bread, the oatmeal bread, the whole grain bread? What's the healthiest? Ah, right? So many decisions. So many decisions, so many options, and it seems to be crippling us. So let's walk down the road of wisdom, friends. How do we be wise in making decisions and not foolish? Here's the big idea if you get lost this morning. Fear the Lord, love your neighbor, and do as you please. There's my answer. Fear the Lord, love your neighbor, and do as you please. We're going to walk that out over our course together. We're used to at our church walking through books of the Bible This is going to be kind of crazy. I offered it last week. Somebody took me up on it. If you want these notes, you're happy to have them. But we're going to have a lot of verses. We'll be jumping all over the book of Proverbs. You'll see those behind me. First step in making wise decisions is fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. Now, you've already heard this a lot over the last couple weeks, but it bears mentioning again and again and again. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And so whatever decision we have, the beginning of that decision must start with the fear of the Lord. And the reason for that is because the fear of the Lord kind of frames the question. It puts it in its proper place. Starting with the fear of the Lord sizes up and orients the decision in the same way that knowing what the weather is outside orients how I should dress that day. So that's the call for wisdom. Fearing the Lord orients all of our decisions because the Lord is the Lord of all. Thus, the call for wisdom, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And so if you, if you don't rejoice and tremble before God, well, Scripture makes clear, you will not have knowledge. You will not have wisdom. And you begin from the wrong place and will likely make a poor decision. In fact, we see this numerous times in Proverbs, but also even outside of that. Where people are not making the fear, they're not fearing the Lord, and therefore their decision making is off. Take a look at the example of Romans 3.18. We learn the reason why some murder and walk in opposition to Christ is, quote, because there is no fear of God before their eyes. Therefore, if we are going to walk the path of wisdom, we must begin with the fear of the Lord, as that is the beginning of knowledge. That's the beginning of wisdom. Listen to Proverbs chapter 16, verses 1 to 6. Notice the differences. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. 
The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And listen, and by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. Fearing the Lord turns away from evil choices. Fearing the Lord turns away from making bad decisions. And therefore it turns towards decisions that give us life. And we recall that the fear of the Lord is not being afraid of the Lord. More so than it is rejoicing and trembling before the Lord. So we, when we think about the Lord, we see and acknowledge God's might, God's holiness, God's majesty, God's glory. It's big, it's intimidating, similar to the way it is when we stand at the rim of the Grand Canyon. It's magnificent, it's beautiful, it's massive, we feel small. And yet, as big as God is for those that are in covenant with the Lord, those who have Christ on their side, they can rejoice amidst this great and holy God, knowing that all that God is will be used for them and their good. We see this so clearly in Exodus chapter 20, the giving of the Ten Commandments. Right after that, uh, we see in Exodus 20, 18 to 20, right after the giving of the Ten Commandments, we read this. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. And and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you. Why? That you may not sin. Do not fear, that the fear of him may be for you, that you may not sin. Don't fear, that is, don't be afraid, but fear, that is, rejoice and tremble before God, that you may sin not sin. And so the Israelites rightly saw God's holiness. They saw his might, his majesty, his glory, and they wanted to run away. But Moses reminded them that they were in covenant with God, that they had a mediator in the form of Moses who would represent them. Therefore, they needn't be afraid of God, but instead they needed to fear him. That is to say, they needed to, yes, tremble before his glory and rejoice That they were in fellowship with him. That God was going to work his plans for their good. And in fearing him in that way, they would make good choices. They would not make evil choices, bad choices. They would choose wisdom, righteousness. Insofar as they held that fear of the Lord before him. So it is for us, friends. The more that we learn to see God and appreciate him for all that he is. The maker of heaven and earth. The sovereign sustainer of our lives. More powerful than accumulated all of the accumulated armies of the G8. Uh, More wealthy than all of them as well. More glorious than the most decorated Olympian. With a purity that is so silky smooth that no man can stand in his presence because of his cleanliness. God, the only God, worthy of all praise, honor, glory, and riches. This God, who is also revealed to us in the person and the work of Christ. The image of the invisible God. The one who is called Emmanuel. God with us. Merciful to the paralytic and ten lepers. The one that welcomed drunkards and prostitutes. The one who was tender with the bleeding woman. The one who wept with Mary and Martha at the death of Lazarus. 
the one who willingly went to the cross to bear our punishment, our shame, our guilt. The one who was pierced for our transgressions. The one that was crushed for our iniquities. The one that upon him was the chastisement that brought those of us that repent and believe peace. Such that, uh, such that now those that repent and believe that have that peace, we are now in fellowship with him. We're in covenant with him. We're able to see his glory. To tremble before him. But rejoice knowing that all that Christ is and who he is, is used for us and our good. Fearing the Lord, rejoicing and trembling before him in his covenant, in this covenant. This is the first and most important work of decision making. We must be oriented to who God is and who we are in God, but also in seeing God for who he is, what also happens? We find out who we are too, right? When we fear the Lord, we also find out who we are. First, in, if we're in Christ, we find out who we are in relation to him, but we also see who we are apart from him. And this is worth noting when we think about making decisions. While so many, we have so many wonderful advances, we are able to take a great deal of control of our lives, aren't we? With transportation, we can wake up in Washington, D.C. and have lunch in California. With technology, we can see our parents who live in another country or buy the most random of things and have them on our doorstep in two days. With medical advances, we can choose to live close to hospitals that will offer us life-saving procedures. With Spotify, we can listen to any music we want at any point in time. In our context, we can even have these so-called experts at our hands to teach ourselves or our children how to play a piano, how to hit a baseball, or shoot a rocket into the outer space. And there is also this freedom to be whoever we want to be. We, we don't, we, we don't uh, have to be bakers and blacksmiths and homemakers anymore. We can choose to be whatever we want with our careers. We can even have more romantic partners available to us than ever before. Think about this, guys. You can sign up, right, on an app. You can put all of your right, dream spouse right there in front of you, and this algorithm will just shoot it out and say, here you go. Here's 37 options. All of it is ours. It's close. It's accessible. It's possible. So much of it a blessing. And yet, at the same time, with all of these abilities to kind of control our lives, it cripples us in our decision-making because it gives us the illusion that we are in control. Meanwhile, as we do that, the greatness of God diminishes when we don't see Him for who we are for who he is and who we are apart from him. Our sight of his greatness as we kind of take on our hold of our own life, we lose sight of ourselves when we try to be like God. Ashley Hales wrote this book called A Spacious Life. Just this week, I asked Owen to put it in our bookstall. It's not down there yet. This book is fantastic. Listen to what she says about all this. She says, quote, when every option is available to us, we don't actually have freedom. We tend to shut down. Amen. Right. I experience what sociologists call choice overload or paralysis and decision fatigue. If you've ever tried to pick out a paint color for a wall or stood in your closet full of clothes with nothing to wear or found yourself trying to find the right word at the end of the day, but your head is muddled from the thousands of decisions you've already sifted through, you know this doesn't feel like freedom. Like too many condiments to choose from. 
We don't need more choices to live the good life, she says. We probably need less. We need instructions, a guide, and appropriately placed guardrails to show us the way forward. She goes on, the the problem of my satisfaction didn't in fact rest on a curated life that I could create from the ground up. The problem, she says, wasn't that I had to manage my time better, do more, or work harder to get what I wanted. I, I had to upend, she said, I had to upend my idea of the good life. The good life wasn't found in my power to choose whatever I wanted. Jesus, she says, could not be a garnish on the top of my unlimited autonomy. He was the gentle shepherd, leading in the narrow way. The way into a more spacious life wasn't through a doorway. The way into a spacious life was through a doorway I didn't want to enter. It was right through my limits. And she ends with this provocative question. What might happen if we tried embracing our limits as gifts for flourishing rather than barriers to our success? It's a great question. I've seen this in Little League coaching. Right? Parents have their kids like on the travel team and the Little League team, and they have them on these academically rigorous stuff, and they're taking these vacations to Italy. They're committed everywhere such that they are actually committed nowhere and they're left with disappointment and distress everywhere. Committed everywhere such that you're committed nowhere leads you with disappointment everywhere. We're trying, in other words, to be like God. All-knowing, all-present, all-powerful. And it's killing us. And so what if instead of trying to be everywhere and do everything in order to have all we want... What if instead we we chose to stand beneath Mount Sinai and look up and beheld the greatness of the glory of God, recognizing his sublime sovereignty and our insufficiency apart from him and embracing our limitations, recognizing that it is the heart of man to plan his way, but the Lord is the one that directs our steps. What if we began fearing the Lord, trusting and treasuring the fact that he is God and we are not, that he's omnipresent, that he is omniscient, that he is omnipotent, and we aren't? What if we stopped trying to be God and started submitting, like really submitting our lives to God by handing over our lives, handing over our children's lives, handing over our loved one's life, handing over our church and our city and our nation to him because we have feared the Lord? What would happen if we did that, like really did that? embracing limitations and accepting the magnification of his glory and his purposes because we saw him for who he is and who we are in him and then who we are apart from him. What if instead of constantly trying to bust through our limitations and get away and get these kind of passing glances uh, of the God of Mount Sinai as we just sort of pass through them, as we tried to create our best life now, what if we stopped doing that and worshiped? Well, friends, I not only do I believe that we would have that peace that we long for, that joy, that acceptance, that community, the relationships, that margin, I believe our decision-making will be made easier. Notice I didn't say easy. Easier. Because our lives will finally be ordered to the truth of who God is and who we are in light of that God. Because our hearts and our minds and our lives and our physical bodies will be bound, not try to get freedom, bound to Him and to His purposes. 
Friend, we are reminded that Jesus Christ redeemed us from our slavery to sin and Satan. We are no longer bound by the desires of the flesh, trying to live our best life now, to be liked by everyone and have everything. Jesus took such high-handed idolatry of trying to be like God, and he bore it on the cross, that idolatry. And now, by grace, through faith in him, we who have believed have died, and now we're free, free to live to Christ, free to live to righteousness, not ourselves, not the world. Romans 6.22, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and it's in, what's the end of righteousness? Eternal life. It's not just an eternal pulse. Eternal life and all that it means. The gospel is man fully alive because Christ is life. He has purchased for us a wealth that the wealthy cannot buy. A love that cannot be rivaled and a home that cannot be stolen. Therefore, repent of all the ways that you've tried to be God and everywhere and trying to be everywhere and do everything to satisfy yourself or others in the now. And then begin to fear the Lord, rejoicing and trembling before his magnificent glory, relishing all that Christ is for you, embracing your limitations and resting in his sovereign plans for your life. Not your, not your plans, his plans for you. Stop and increasingly worship. That's the first step. Fearing the Lord and all of life. Living before the face of God. Living before Sinai. Proverbs 14, 26. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence. Anybody want strong confidence in your decision making? There you go. Step two. Know the word of the Lord. Know the word of the Lord. If the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and we need knowledge to make decisions... It would only make sense that the fear of the Lord, it would only make sense that we fear the Lord by pursuing the word of the Lord. And yet, what do we read in Proverbs 1, 7? Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So there are these folks that they're not really into the Bible that much. Not really want that much of its instruction. They don't really prioritize preaching and teaching of the word. But those of us seeking to live before the face of God, walking down the path of wisdom that leads to life, we are the kinds of people that should be prizing the word, searching it out for answers. Listen to Proverbs 2, 1 to 6. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom, making uh, and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Now, guys, I want you to notice something in that passage I just read. Wisdom wisdom doesn't just say, you know, try to, when you're making decisions, kind of read the Bible and get some understanding from it. That's not what Proverbs 2 just said, right? Did you catch it? He says, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, if you seek it like silver, if you search for it like hidden treasure. In other words, in your decisions, you don't just search the scriptures in the same way you search for refried beans in the grocery store. It's not like that. It's not like searching for what's this rash on WebMD. It's not like that. You're searching the scriptures because you believe them 
in them are the ingredients that will make your life tasty. You believe that in the word of the Lord is the life of the Lord that goes on to eternal glory. Proverbs 3, 5. We trust in the Lord with all our hearts and we don't lean on our own understanding. Why? Because we've come to see see God at the base of Mount Sinai. We've seen his glory, how he's used his glory for our good. We know that we're broken. Therefore, we trust him. How? By trusting his word. That's how we know that we're trusting him and fearing him. We can think to last week's sermon. Those two paths, right? We know the path of wisdom is aiming to be thoughtful in order to arrive at the truth for life. And we're not endeavoring to walk down the path of folly that is appealing to us by sensuality through deception that leads to death. Many of you know I love that line. Maybe it's cliche, but I love it. From Braveheart, when Wallace says, Every man dies, but not every man lives. And, friends, there was no one that was more true of than Jesus Christ. And his life was dominated by the Scriptures. He was the one of whom Colossians says are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And his life was dominated by the Scriptures. He believed the Bible was written by man's hands on the Holy Spirit's inspiration. He believed uh, that the Bible was authoritative for life and doctrine. And because it was, it answered all the important questions for him, for work and for Sabbath, for sexuality, for marriage, for worship. He believed in creation. He believed in the resurrection of the dead. He believed that the Bible was the kind of highway to heaven. In the joys of heaven, he believed in that word could be had now. Jesus taught the Bible in such a way as to show us that you didn't need to be a priest. You didn't need to be a, have all these knowledge of councils. You didn't need to have uh, seminary degrees. What Jesus taught was that you just needed the counselor, the Holy Spirit, to illuminate you, to see the truth, no matter who you are or where you're from. I love that line, one of my favorite quotes from John Newton. If we were to search the whole world to find the best Christian, we would most certainly not find them in a pulpit but probably some woman in a mud-walled cottage, a woman at her wheel, because it's accessible, right? The Bible is accessible to all those that are seeking out the truth of Christ. In our church's statement of faith regarding the Bible, it says, quote, we believe that the Holy Bible consisting of the scriptures of the Old and New Testament alone is the word of God, being fully written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and therefore is without error in the original manuscripts and has supreme authority in all matters of faith and conduct. That's decision-making. We said, the members of this church said, that's, we, we, we believe that's true. And so church family, you need to know that in this book, there's more wisdom in this book than we give it credit for. It has very clear statements about life and ministry. The Bible's very clear about... Uh, It's not unclear about who should be pastors and who shouldn't and who should take the Lord's Supper and who shouldn't. The Bible's not unclear about what the gospel is and isn't. It's really clear in the scriptures. When it comes to those more murky decisions, those difficult decisions that make up most of our life, it's true that the Bible won't tell you if you should buy or rent. But the Bible has a lot to say about debt. It's true that it won't tell you that whether or not you should should marry Bob or Sue. But it does tell you the kinds of people that you should be looking for to marry. 
It won't tell you if you should join this church or that church. But it does clearly define the gospel and what a church is and what a church ought to be doing with that gospel. No, it won't tell you if you should have your kids sign up for travel sports. But it does tell you to not forsake the habit of gathering, which some have done. It does tell you to not forsake the priority of the family. You see, too often in our decisions, we assume the Bible doesn't really have much to say, if anything at all. Or, if we're honest, we don't really want to know what it says. So we won't like its answer. Instead, often our instincts is to assert ourselves in our own interpretations, which are often deceived, sensual and selfish, as we talked about last week. Because we, again, we assume, or, or worse, we don't want to know what it says because it might make our lives more difficult. Remember, friends, Scripture makes that clear. That's the path of fools when you're not endeavoring to know the knowledge of the Lord. The fools, it says, fools despise the Lord's wisdom and knowledge. Proverbs 1, 29 to 32. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof, therefore they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. You see what the Lord's doing? Because you don't want to know what God says. Just sort of, he just lets you have it. For the simple are killed by their turning away. And the complacency of fools destroys them. Friend, don't be a fool. Don't reject the Lord by rejecting his word. And don't assume the Lord has nothing to say about the decisions you have to make. Query the text. Query the text. May the word of the Lord be as it was for Jesus. May it be your food, your sustenance, your path. May the word of the Lord be as you say, members of this church, you believe. May it be your supreme authority. And Restoration Church, I just want to commend you on this behalf. You are such a joy to lead in this. You so often long to know the truth. I can't tell you how many times people wanted to email me or spend time with me to sort of help me counsel. And I've heard it happen with you guys happening. Just what does the Bible say about this? I've seen this happen so many times when you guys have made difficult decisions because you believed in the clarity of the word. I thank God for your desire to walk that path. Thank you for being such a joy to shepherd in that way. But understand, beloved, this scripture has more to say than you think it does. Query the text. Search out the word as for, like you would for treasure, knowing that it will be life for you. May we be like Martin Luther, who when threatened and intimidated to deny what he wrote about the gospel, said, my conscience is captive to the word of God. To go against conscience is neither right nor safe. I therefore therefore cannot and will not recant. Here I stand, so help me God. May we be like that. Third point. End of making decisions. We fear the Lord. We query the word of the Lord. Third, we seek wise counsel. Seek wise counsel. Once again, friends, we live in a place and a time where individual is king. Our parents probably taught us. They probably taught you to be independent. And of course, there's a great deal of wisdom in that. I teach my kids to be independent. How about some things? However, if we are always or often independent in our decision-making, we will inevitably follow down the path of fools. Because in and of ourselves, we are broken cisterns. Nathan Knight is a broken cistern. Nathan Knight has blind spots. Nathan Knight has weaknesses. Right? If you've heard me talk about Joey, like y'all need to pray, right? First week gone, he's on sabbatical. Tons of problems. Need a lot of wise counsel. The other half of me that helps me understand all my blind spots is gone for the next two months. 
Right? We need wise counsel because we all have these brokenness. And it's true that the Lord in his wisdom and might has given us the spirit of God to counsel us in the truth. Yes, of course, that's true. But he also, of course, gave us his people to help guide us in the truth as well. Proverbs talks a ton about seeking wise counsel and the foolishness of not doing so. Here's a few. Proverbs eleven fourteen, Where there is no guidance, a people falls. But in abundance of counselors, there's safety. Proverbs twelve fifteen: The way of fools is right in his own eyes. But a wise man listens to advice. Fifteen twenty two: Without counsel, plans fail. With many advisors, they succeed. 24.6, for by wise guidance you can wage your war. And in the abundance of counselors, there's victory. That's just a few guys. There's many more than that in Proverbs. We would be fools if we think we have nothing to learn, to glean from the wisdom of others. Especially those that have taught us the word, those that have striven to help us understand it. And so, beloved, seize upon the wisdom of godly men and women in order to get answers about your questions regarding more children, more degrees, more dates with potential spouses. And don't seek, don't just seek wisdom, guys. This is important. Listen to it. Right? I've seen this happen. Well, I talked to so-and-so. What do they say? Well, they say this. Well, what did did you think about? Well, I didn't want to hear that. Well, no, 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 wait a minute. You don't just seek wise counsel to have everything confirmed, right? Listen to it. Seek it and listen to it insofar as it is wise. Now listen, you then ask, well, Nathan, how, do, how can I be sure it's wise? Well, guess what? Query the text. James 3.17. Wisdom from above is first pure. This is how you know if it's wise advice. It's, it's, from a, it's first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, and this is important, and sincere. In other words, they love God. They're trying to love you. And so just because someone is old doesn't make them wise. And just because someone is young doesn't make them a fool. So look for men and women that are endeavoring to do what we've said. To fear the Lord and know his word. Seek them out. Weigh their wisdom that is from above. Be willing to listen to it, even and especially if you disagree. And when you go to them seeking wise counsel, be aware of two things and ask two things. Be aware of two things and ask two things when you're seeking wise counsel. First, be aware of the fact when you're seeking wise counsel, be aware of the fact that can doesn't always equal should. Can doesn't always equal should. So because we can do something, that is, we're free, the Lord doesn't intend to bind our conscience, it doesn't mean that you should or ought to do that thing. So, for instance, just because I can travel and work remotely and I can worship God wherever I am and I want to travel, therefore I should travel as much as I can. Not necessarily. Just because I can date a guy who claims to be a Christian and yet shows little fruit and I like him and he likes me, so I should go on a few dates to see if I like him. No, not necessarily. I can buy a house in Pennsylvania, not here, and I want a house, therefore I should buy it. No, not necessarily. 1 Corinthians 6, 12. This is an important one. All things are lawful for me. He's quoting there. Then he goes on to say, clarifying that, but not all things are helpful. Isn't that true? Amen or ouch, right? He goes on to say, all things are lawful for me, 
but I will not be dominated by anything. So understand that in making decisions, can doesn't always equal should. Understand that when you're seeking it out. But also, second thing to be aware of in seeking wise counsel is that this wise counsel needs to be situationally aware. Situationally aware or situationally sensitive. One of the things that makes Proverbs difficult to interpret is because sometimes it appears as though Proverbs is making promises when more often it's making principles. Give me an example of that. Proverbs 26, 28. A lying tongue hates its victims, and a flattering mouth works ruin. Now, some of us know this, right? Just because someone's lying doesn't always mean that they're hating their victim. And a flattering mouth doesn't always mean that they are endeavoring to work ruin. But the principle is certainly true, right? Likewise, when seeking wise counsel, we need to know the situation to provide the best counsel. Take, for instance, Proverbs 26.4. It's a famous one in Proverbs. Proverbs 26.4 says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Super helpful, right? Don't answer a fool according to his folly. He acts a fool, don't act a fool back, right? He spouts off a four-page long email telling about what an idiot you are. Don't send a four-page email back talking about any of that. Don't answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own right. But do you all know what that very next verse is? That's 26.4. Do you all know what 26.5 says? Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. See, Proverbs clearly understands it's giving you these principles. Right? We know that there are times in which we do need to answer the fool according to his folly. So it's situation-specific. Proverbs is trying to do this. So in seeking wise counsel, have them make sure that they are aware of the different circumstances so as to know how best to apply the principles of wisdom. And here's the two questions. When you go to seek wise counsel, ask the wise counsel to help you evaluate or answer these two questions. Here's the first. How do you think this decision will affect my relationship with the Lord? Help them process that out. How do you think this decision will affect my relationship with the Lord? So, for instance, if I continue this dating relationship with a guy that's not really leading me towards Christ, or maybe he is, maybe he is, if I choose to maybe not go to community group consistently, how will this affect my love for Christ? Should I stay at this church or join that other church? Should I watch this movie or TV show? Seek wise counsel and help them to help you process, how's this going to affect my love for Christ? And then the second question to help them uh, have the wise counsel process is this. How will this affect my relationship with others? And I'm going to say more specifically, God's people, right? God has a priority with that relationship. So, for instance, how will I, how will this decision affect my relationship with others? Specifically, God's people, right? So, if I buy this house, that will mean I have to move churches, meaning I will largely lose those relationships, Help me work that through. Doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. Just make sure and work that out. If I take this job, no matter how much money I have or how much power I have, will I be able to be present in my family or the relationships that God means for me to tend to and be blessed by? Help them to process how it'll affect your relationship to other people. And friends, these two questions, how's it going to reflect my relationship to God and to my neighbor in particular, God's people. Those two questions are critical, not just because I think so, but because God says those are the two, first two greatest commands by which all the law is fulfilled. Love God, love neighbor. Therefore, whatever decision you make, those two things ought to be evaluated. Fourth, 
We cultivate a fear of the Lord. Second, we search out the treasured truths of the Lord and His Word. Third, we seek wise counsel. And fourth, we pray. We pray. This one's shorter. Proverbs 22.4 The reward for humility and the fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. I'll read that again. The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. Proverbs 29.23 One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. Friends, the most important wise counselor you need to consult is God. And the way you do that is through prayer. And by neglecting prayer, you're prideful. You're prideful. You're walking the path of fools by trusting in yourself and your own independent thinking when you're not praying. By humbling yourself, going to the Lord in prayer, regarding your decisions, not just once, but regularly, you show your dependence, show your fear of the Lord. And remember, one of the greatest blessings of the gospel is not only that Jesus promises to not only give us, implant that fear of the Lord within us, but also he promises in the gospel to give us the counselor, to give us the Holy Spirit to what will he do? Guide us in the truth. And so one of the most frustrating and disturbing things, let me go ahead and put this out there for you guys, right? One of the most frustrating and disturbing things as your pastor is when, I've had this happen with, you know, probably a quarter of you in this room right here. Where I'm sitting in front of you and you're like, oh, Nathan, I don't know if we should do this, do that, whatever. You know, what's my first question? Have you been praying about it? And the answer, I, I, guys, this comes back often. Often I get the answer, no or not really. And you've been there, you know what I say back to you. Well, then what do you think I'm going to do to help you? Like if you're not even taking this to the Lord, you think this idiot's going to help you? Come on, Right? <laughs> Once again, we've, we've got to be aware of the winds of doctrine that are around us that have taught us to be self-sufficient and in control of our lives. Rehearse your limitations and God's good providential sovereignty and pray. Again, this is one of the privileges of the gospel. Because Christ has shared his righteousness with us, we as his children can go to the Father and ask him to guide us. Proverbs or James 1.5, there's a promise. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives. Y'all remember this? I still remember this from the James series. The gives there is present active, who constantly is giving, who gives generously to all without approach, and it will be given to him. I was encouraged by a brother in our community group this week. Uh, we spent our accountability time last week going around the room, going, all right, guys, what decisions do you have to make that you're struggling with? You need some help and wisdom on. We went around, and one brother was talking about he has all these things, and he didn't know exactly what to do. And we asked him, I asked him, how you been praying? Not as much. And so he sent this week to a few of us his prayer plan. Now, that's, that's just, he gotta, he's got to go do it, right? But nevertheless, that's wise. These are the times I'm going to set aside, because I've got these questions going on. These are the times I'm going to set aside to go to God. Guys, we've got to be a people that prays. Invite others into your life to pray for you. Share with others. Pray for others. Invite your community group to pay for you. Today, here you go, guys. Immediate application. I always love immediate applications. After the service is over today, pull somebody aside. Share with them what's going on. Ask them to pray for you. And y'all pray together right there. You know, this is amazing. You can actually do that right here. You can actually pay here. It's amazing. Pray right there. Just go ahead and do it. Pray. And believe God will guide you by the Holy Spirit who will then counsel you in the way that you should go and give you peace in that decision.
Don't be prideful. Be humble in your decisions by going to your Heavenly Father and asking Him to guide you. Okay. After having cultivated the fear of the Lord in your life, after having searched the Word of the Lord, after having sought wise counsel and prayer, finally, lastly, joyfully and confidently apply your understanding of the truth and decide, make a decision, and then, listen, go to sleep. Happily, confidently. After you've done this work, you've prayed, you've worked, you've talked to people, make a decision, joyfully make a decision, and go to sleep. A lot of you agonize over the decision you could have made instead of entrusting to the Lord the decision that you did make in the fear of the Lord. This is what Barry Schwartz's book is all about. You start thinking about all the decisions that you could have made instead of the one you actually made that you really worked through and you tried to be careful on. Once again, guys, die to the ways your anxiety is derived from your desire to control your life. Embrace your limitations. Submit to his sublime sovereignty. Your life is in the hands of a loving father. He sees all. You see a tiny little sliver of reality. And even that you can't really control. He is working all things together for the good of those that love him. He is not working. Listen, he is not working all things together for your ease and your circumstantial happiness. He is not working that. He is working for your good in the end. Therefore, hold out a category, guys, that your decisions may need to lead you to some crosses. But know that on the other side of those crosses, every time is resurrection. Know that. So entrust your decisions, all of them to the Lord who raises the dead. And believe that after you've given yourself to him in this process, he'll carry you, he'll carry your family, he'll carry your friends, he'll carry us as a church, he'll carry us on. He will never leave us, he'll not forsake us. And so there's no reason to fear and every reason to joyfully trust God after we've made the decision. Fear the Lord, love your neighbor, and do as you please. Choose as you want and go to sleep. Whatever it is you decide. Y'all know I'm borrowing this from Augustine, right? I kind of massaged it a little bit. Augustine said so many years ago, love God and do what you want. And we always hear that second part. We need to hear the first part. Love God and do what you want. And then rest easy as you do. Because in the end, beloved, we have Jesus. We have Jesus. The one, listen to this, the one that chose you before the foundation of the world. He knew all of your inconsistencies, all of your failures, and he chose you before you chose him. Rest in his love. Rest in his sovereign, good plan for your life. And lastly, friend, if you have not decided to choose Christ as your Savior, let me invite you to do that this morning. You can do that. If you've not chosen Christ as Lord and Savior, Choose Christ. Today is the day of salvation. Turn from sin. Trust in Christ for not only his wisdom, but for your forgiveness. That you might know him and enjoy him forever. Choose Christ and sleep well. Final quote from John Newton. He said, quote, if the Lord be with us, we have no cause to fear. His eyes are upon us. His arms are over us. His ear is open to our prayer. His grace sufficient. His promise 
unchangeable. Oh, beloved, fear God. Know that he loves you and is for you in Christ. You're in covenant relationship with him. He's given you eyes to see and planted the spirit to guide you, the church to orient you. Love your neighbor, knowing that that's life. Don't embrace your limitations. Follow him and decide. Pray, seek wise counsel, pray, and then sleep good. God's got you and he'll carry you home.